a lot of the people going to places like Cambridge and others, you know, these top universities, might be state educated, but they're highly privileged. And often they're as highly privileged as the private school counterparts, right? They must have some kind of insider information that your average UK state school doesn't have. It can be very overwhelming when 70% of my year is private school. What are the long-term consequences for social mobility? Having been gripped by the Operation Varsity Blue scandal, in which it was revealed that thousands of parents had been paying to unlawfully secure a place for their children at some of the top schools in the US, I wanted to see whether this type of corruption was an issue in the UK. I was aware of some key differences between the admissions processes in America and Britain, such as the greater recognition of sporting achievements in the US. But in order to fully understand how we might compare the two systems, I interviewed Lee Elliott Major, the UK's first professor of social mobility. I then spoke to students at the University of Cambridge, finding out about their roles, one as a class act officer, and the other's lived experience being from an unrepresented area. I'm Kasia Pendlebury, and the attempt to have a broader understanding of how British higher education compares to what in the US has been exposed as an easily corrupted system. My hopes in making this programme were to go beyond my own perceptions of what access really means and to see if there are things we could be doing better here at home. Operation Varsity Blues. Operation Varsity Blues. Operation Varsity Blues. We're here today to announce charges in the largest college admissions scam ever prosecuted by the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice charged 50 people, most of them wealthy parents of college students. The accusations range from paying thousands of dollars for higher SAT scores to presenting students as top athletes in sports they never even played. When it comes to getting into the best schools, there's one system for people who have money and one for everyone else. I think some key things to take into account when it comes to comparing corruption levels in the UK and the US is, first of all, the system is very, very different, right? So in the UK, we all have UCAS, you pay a certain amount of money, you get five universities, you write one personal statement and then at different universities, more commonly Oxbridge or anywhere that you apply to study medicine will also have their own requirements. But in the US, there is a lot of funding available for sports scholarships, which is really where the problem was when it comes to the Operation Varsity Blue scandal, because parents were paying a self-professed tutor who, who really couldn't call himself that to Photoshop their children playing sports, to get people to take their SATs for them, to come up with all sorts of loopholes not even loopholes, actual corrupt, fraudulent ways of getting into university and had people paid on the inside, on the outside, and it seems like every link in the chain, there was an opportunity for someone to be bribed. In the UK, that's obviously not the system, and we don't have this thing where a, a massive donation will probably guarantee you a place. It's not, to my knowledge, half as common as it is across the Atlantic. So I don't think I was really expecting to see actual corruption in the UK, but at the same time, we do know that the levels of cheating in A-levels and GCSEs are rising, yet this doesn't seem to be on the same kind of scale as in America where you have a whole business dedicated to it. So it's obviously not a perfect system, but I really wasn't expecting to find anything massive. I was more concerned about why I had this perception that higher education is still so unequal. I had seen Lee speak in a class panel, which also featured Ibsmo, 
a study tuber known for his informative videos on being from a minority background at one of the UK's top universities, as well as his work in access to higher education. I was interested in hearing from Lee as his reflections on social mobility are data-driven, and I was used to speaking about class and access in either abstract terms or reflecting on people's lived experience. I'm Professor of Social Mobility at the University of Exeter, and I'm Lee Elliott Major. The first, we think, Professor of Social Mobility in this country or anywhere. And I was former Chief Executive of the Sutton Trust um, Foundation, which does a lot of work with universities like Cambridge in terms of improving access for children, young people from all backgrounds. So I, I spent a sort of lifetime thinking about these issues of social mobility and access and, and an equitable, I guess, education system. And it's very much a personal as well as professional passion. I'm the first in my family to go into higher education. I, I probably won't tell you the whole sob story, but I, you know, I left home when I was 15. I did apply to Cambridge, by the way, and I ended up not going to Cambridge. And, and I always tell the story. I'm just, I've just written a book called The Good Parent Educator. It's all about equipping parents with information about education so they can help their children from school age all the way up to university applications, indeed helping them look for jobs. And I, I do a chapter on Oxbridge applications and I recount my experiences there. And I found it that the admissions tutors, this is a long time ago now, remember, this is the 1980s, but they were very welcoming to me, I have to say, as a state school applicant. And it was me dropping out of school that actually, in the end, meant that I didn't go to Cambridge. But I always say to people, you could be careful of what you presume, because I think I went into that interview at Cambridge thinking that they would be biased against me, partly because I had blonde spiky hair at the time and I was from London and big earrings and eyeliner. We wore eyeliner in the 80s. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth, I have to say. So, uh, But perhaps that's another story, Kasia, that, that I think for many selective universities, particularly, I, I think, Cambridge and Oxford, there are still very many myths and, and misconceptions about, about those universities. So I'm, I'm very, very committed to social mobility, I suppose social justice, some people would call it. And, you know, most of my research, uh, my teaching is all about that. So I'm a big project that is funded by the government at the moment, looking into COVID inequalities. So what what are the the inequalities in education have they been exacerbated have they been exposed more by the pandemic and we're looking at both schools and universities and what are the long-term consequences for social mobility so what happens to all these young people who don't get jobs who might not get into the universities that they might have done before I'm doing a joint project with some colleagues at Oxford looking at the social class backgrounds of scientific and creative elites in the country just to find out what what their backgrounds are. I'm doing a project looking at children that we call the left behind. So these are these are kids that, that leave school without any basic maths and literacy. And you know, what why is that the case? So that's a different aspect of social mobility. That's really, you know, the argument that everyone should leave school with being able to sort of prosper to some extent in their lives. I talk to the government a lot about these issues and you know one of, one of the things I'm, tr I'm trying to do at the moment is ensure that in those discussions uh, and discussions I have with big employers as well that that they look at socioeconomic background as well as gender and, eth and ethnicity in discussions around diversity. So 
I think there's some really good things, and but there still are huge gender divides, particularly in things like pay. And I think we need to still address those at senior levels. But generally, I think you know this these these debates about diversity we've improved in terms of some of those other things, gender and ethnicity. We at least have more public debate about them. Whereas the missing one for me is social economic background, and and so I'm sort of thinking a lot about that at the moment. I do I do sessions with trainee teachers. How do you improve schooling for disadvantaged pupils? So listen, the list goes on. Do you think sometimes you know when universities say we have X number of state school applicants or offer holders that can kind of skew it a little bit sometimes because like I went to state school, but both of my parents are lecturers, like I was definitely in a better position than other people. And I think still most of the people, especially at Cambridge, but that's just my personal experience that I bump into from state school, went to kind of quite a good state school and maybe had a bit of private tutoring and also have, you know, connections before you even go to apply. So do you think that can kind of be a bit misrepresentative from time to time? Yes, it's a very crude proxy, to be honest, for disadvantage. And listen, I've used it many times and and it gives you good headline figures, um, but it only really tells you one thing, you know, and and I, I do worry a little bit about the obsession with state versus private schooling as as the sort of background measure. You need to look at, at things like whether someone was on free school meals, whether they attended a state school that had average lower performance than, than others. Um, the, 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 the thing that we found in our research, and that's one of the research projects we're looking into at the moment, is comparing social class background to education background. And one of the reasons we're looking into that is because actually a lot of the people going to places like Exeter as well as Cambridge and others you know these top universities might be state educated but they're highly privileged and often they're as highly privileged as the private school counterparts right um, so I, I think you have to be careful with the, the way that you um, look at these debates I, th- I think it does tell you something but but it, you know you've got to look at other measures of background and what we found and, and I've observed in my writing and books over the years is that, you know, we've, we've got something that, that's called the escalating education arms race in this country. And that is people investing, people like me, parents, investing more and more energy and resource into their children's education, right? They are, there's always, all many ways you can do that. And what some people choose to, to educate privately, so you have to pay the fees. Uh, people like me send their children to local state schools, good state schools, but then they top it up with lots of private tutoring. And and that has been a phenomenon really over the last 20 years. So about, depending on where you are, but in London, we're getting up to levels of nearly one in two 11 to 16 year olds have had some tutoring at some point. And that's mainly fueled by the middle classes. You know, it's the, it's the people that have the disposable income who can afford it. And it's an interesting debate, Kasia, on this, because, you know, all these social mobility debates that I'm involved in come down to questions of balance and fairness. And I think it's quite right that we give freedom to people and parents to invest the, the best of their children. I don't think anyone's going to be able to stop that if they, if they wanted to. But, and this is the big but, if we don't give 
young people resources to invest in tutoring if they don't have the parental support then they get left behind in this in this arms race and that's what we're finding in all the studies is that increasingly it's children who don't have parents who aren't lucky enough to have those those resources who are fall, falling more behind so yeah, my view is that a levels increasingly are a signal of how much support you've got in the home as much as your academic potential so it, it, it sort of it means i think you've got to look at how you identify talent in universities in different ways i would say i think you were speaking a little bit at the class panel about kind of molding the class and how you might just kind of find maybe a threshold for admissions and like does that then go into your kind of way of thinking how to identify talent? Do you have an idea of how that might be? Yeah, so I've become convinced of this, this idea of the threshold approach, which, which basically means, you know, you still have to get over a certain grade to get into somewhere like Cambridge, right? But that you, you, would, you would set that at a bar. It probably would be a very high bar for some of the selective degrees that, that you know, a, a highly selective university but we wouldn't get into this sort of game of ranking every single candidate in a way that we do at the moment and and I think that that we spend a lot of time trying to rank candidates using all sorts of tests and measures many of which aren't proven to be predictive of how good young people do at university and I just think we, we, to be honest it becomes a bit of a lottery anyway for some I, I think that there is very hard to distinguish between many very high achieving candidates so I think there's a practical reason for this is cost actually we low if you just looked at people over a certain threshold and then you know from my sort of social justice if you like perspective I would say well actually every one of those if they are able to prosper uh, somewhere like Cambridge then you use other criteria that that enables you to have a more diverse mix of students now we've proposed the use of lotteries in the past I think that's quite a big ask you know so that's where you literally would pick people out of the hat and then if you didn't get into one highly selected institution probably you'd be guaranteed somewhere else so you'd go somewhere I think people struggle with that but the, re the reason that I've suggested that is because it's the only way to remove middle class advantage the middle classes will always find a way I can tell you and when you're a parent there are these almost primal forces that are unleashed and you want to do the best for your children so, so that's why we propose lottery the other way of doing it is what the Ivy League institutions do and, and there's many things I wouldn't do by the way from what Ivy League institutions do but one of the things I think they do do is shape the class. So they literally will look at a, a number of candidates with high SAT or ACT scores. And they'll say, well, look, are we, okay, we want someone from a certain background. Um, and, and they literally shape the class in terms of its diversity. So why can't we do that in this country? I mean, it, it's, it's sort of how we conceptualise talent and, and background is, is what you realise when you look at these things is it's fairly arbitrary, actually. You know, we, we do it in this country in this way because we've always done it this way. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way. It's just the way we've always done it. So I'd really like us to sort of consider more radical ways of doing it. I thought about both of those ideas. and I thought the lottery to me, it just seems so bizarre, but makes a lot of sense. Whereas I think shaping the class I think I thought maybe that could heighten a sense of imposter syndrome for people who already feel like they shouldn't be in these institutions so if you're kind of going well you literally have only got in because you were from this postcode or because you were this gender or this ethnicity 
I wasn't really sure how that would work. I, I like the idea of, of choosing a more diverse class and, and actively seeking that. But I think there's this whole kind of imposter syndrome that there's baggage that does come from being in like a, with a minority background. Yeah, remember, you'd still have to get over the threshold. And, and these thresholds are probably going to be very high. You know, it's probably, I don't know, Kasia, what the requirements for your degree were, but we're probably talking A, A, A stars here. You know, it's still going to be people that have achieved incredibly highly in their A levels. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, imposter syndrome, you know, I, I've sort of given talks about that and been involved in discussions on, on that. That is something that many people suffer from in terms of whether they come from a disadvantaged background or whether they're female. I mean, it, interestingly, imposter syndrome really came from a literature around women, actually feeling these, these, these were high achieving women who felt uh, imposter syndrome. It's been widened in recent years to the broader people, anyone who feels that they're not of the of the same type as the sort of conventional type that's in in that place. So I, I think that that's that's a big area, right? And I would I would say this this would be only one thing. And 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 you know, there's many ways that you can try and address imposter syndrome. Partly talking about it, actually, but but also I, I do think getting people from diverse backgrounds into more prominent positions. I think we need more of that that, that sort of role models, I guess, so that people don't feel they're the only ones. But no, I've, I've become convinced by all this. One of the reasons why I say this is because I've been looking at the admission statistics for, for two decades more now, you know, and it hasn't changed that much. And I think there's lots of efforts, actually, that universities do make. So I, I just feel like we've got, to, we've got to move the dial on this and we've got to change what we're doing. I think there's a, a huge amount of effort made to do outreach and especially with Oxbridge, get lots of people in to look and then when they get in. Do you think enough is done for people once they're at university? It's a really big issue, I think. Uh, we And I hope one of the things that comes out of the pandemic will be much better support for students once they're in uh, in the university. So there's been a big sort of drive around what access, you know, over, over the last couple of decades but not success, you know, so how do you, and when I mean success, I don't mean just, you know, maximising your degree grades at the end of your course. I mean, making sure that those students are equipped to prosper in life after they graduate and that they are healthy and, you know, all those things and, 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 and mental wellbeing. I, I think universities will need to think much more about how they support people from different backgrounds and actually all students I would say once they're studying and and that means pastoral support as well as academic support uh, and we just don't do enough of that and I, and I think it's going to be really interesting the debate around this because I, I, I still feel that universities don't do enough to listen to students you know and a lot of my work is about students is about diversity of intakes and there's been a lot of talk about, you know, we have now have an office for students that champions student needs. But I, I just don't think it's gone far enough. I don't think university strategies are influenced by students as much as they should be. And so there's a bigger debate around that, I think. Maybe moving on a bit to the specific scandal in the US and, and whether you think there's actually any evidence of that in the UK. You said about obviously parents are paying for private tutoring. It's probably not as it 
extortionate prices as I've heard of or seen in the US, especially with admissions tutoring? Yeah, so I was fascinated by the Huffman affair, you know, looking over from this side of the Atlantic to the other, because I do think there are some parallels. The whole Vasty Blue scandal, the biggest scandal in college admissions history, was about cheating. You know, it was it was about fraud in many ways, right? And my view is there are some universal issues that come from that. And partly it's because there's so much pressure on parents to get their young children I keep on saying children, it's young people really, into highly selective, the top universities, right? And I think that is such a pressurised thing for some parents that they then cross the line of fairness. They go over, and this was a this was a really clear example of that, you know, paying other people to do the tests for you, bribing admissions officers. To my knowledge, we haven't seen any of that in the UK yet, but I do think there are similarities and there's lots of uh, evidence of cheating overall going up. So in school admissions, for example, there's, there's loads of research that shows that a minority of parents will, for example, rent a flat near a high-performing state school. There's other ways you can do it. There's other tricks of, of getting into. This is usually state schools. It's usually high-performing state schools. And we know also that cheating in exams is going up each year. So if you look at either you know GCSEs and A-levels in England, uh, the number of cases now, and it'd be interesting to know what happens this year, by the way, because it's a very different year, but generally more pupils are getting caught cheating. Partly that's driven by technology because you can try and sneak in your mobile phone or whatever but also university students as well we're, we're, you know you see more essay copying for example than you did in recent years so partly that's driven by access to, to technology but I, I think the reason why I mention all these things I think I think there is this pressure on everyone to do well in those exams and and the system is under so much pressure I think there is always that temptation to cross the line of fairness I would call it so I've seen it in schooling, definitely. And of course, that just means you could argue that that leads to better A-levels. So that is just a form of cheating to get into the universities. What I haven't seen, Kasia, I haven't, I haven't actually seen cases of, of cheating in, in, in our admission system. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not there, but but I haven't, we haven't observed them. Remember, the American system is different to ours. So some of the stuff around the Huffman affair was around sports. If you're, if you're a great athlete, you know, and for the for the one of the others, you can get a ticket, if you like, into... Uh, and we don't have that system here. We don't have this this system where if, if you're a big donor to the university, then your son or daughter might get a better chance. But, you know, there, there are examples of cheating in A-levels. So I think there's some universal issues here. And it's, for me, it's driven by that, what I call the education arms race. And that seems to escalate with every year. So every year we observe this, the pressure seems to mount up even more. And I think the interesting thing to me as well with this, with this stuff is that your view of what is fair game changes from one person to the next. So I used to think that if I sat around a dinner table with, with most of my friends we'd have a similar view about what we thought was acceptable in terms of school admissions or, or, or universities. I found that that's not the case, actually, that, that some people think it's completely legitimate to rent a flat, say, near a school, even if it's not within the rules. And I find that really interesting because I, I think, uh, you know, there is no offside rule that we all agree on. You know, 
and, and that comes back to what I was saying earlier, I think, about this balancing act we've, we have in society, which is freedom for people to do as much as they can to help their children get on in life versus how do you improve the prospects of those from disadvantaged backgrounds? Because most of that cheating, in my view, seems to be happening from the middle classes you know, making sure that they get the positions for their for their children. I guess with that, there's kind of maybe two options is that you could really clamp down on all these people doing this, like pretending they're Catholic, whatever, whatever it is to get into school. Or I think it does just kind of speak to perhaps that not enough is being done in education if people feel like they need to do this. Whereas I think, you know, I'm not sure would you necessarily pay for private tutoring if you thought the school was doing all it could, if you thought the school was funded enough and that every state school would be the same kind of level and that teachers, especially with the pandemic, I think we've seen that, you know, teachers don't get enough money for the job that they're doing a lot of the time. So I, I think I'd just be interested in how you see this being levelled up. Yeah, I think there is something in that. You know, I don't think our state schools are funded enough at the, at the moment. I think they, they do an awful lot in terms of picking up society's ills generally actually and you know I don't I don't think we fund them enough I, I would say that I don't think that's ever going to stop the arms race though you know because I think what what it's about is really is about getting ahead of your competitors and I hate to use that language but really what you're saying is with with elite universities there are only so many places so how do I enable my son or daughter to just get that extra grade so they're just one grade better than all the other candidates so it's a zero-sum game so I think private tutoring is about getting the advantage over others saying that I think we do, we have a too much a one-size-fits-all education system so we should celebrate young people who go into apprenticeships and other ways rather than just going to university or even just going to the highly selective universities you know, going to a high secondary is one way of succeeding and it's right for certain people from, you know, who have an academic preference. It's become almost the only success, I think, over, over many years. And that's why you've got this intense competition, which is fueling all of this private tutoring and, and, and other things. So I wish we had better recognition of talents across the spectrum, whether they be creative, vocational or, or, or academic. So I think that's one of the issues, actually, with this cash. I think it, I think it's the sort of narrowness of how we see success. The issue with that, of course, is that at the moment, the Russell Group universities still supply, if you look at the elite professions, you know, many of those come from the Russell Group graduates, right? So that gets you into debates about whether we should we should diversify that whether we should have more apprenticeship routes into those employers. But I, I think we need to break away from that just one-size-fits-all approach to education. And just for the people who, who do want to go to university and are perhaps a bit wary or don't really know what it's about, I think you were talking quite a bit about mentorship schemes. And I was thinking about this, and I, I kind of think it's a very positive thing most of the time. But I think if you, you have people who are already from a poorer background, for example, feeling like, they have to do this mostly unpaid work whether there should be kind of mentorship schemes that actually financially reward people because they're they're giving up a lot of their time and perhaps detracting from time that they could be spent studying and a lot of these people have to get part-time jobs as well to fund their studies yes I, I mean I think you have to do this in the right way and you know when I was talking about mentoring 
you know, the reason I, I like those sort of programs, and they have to be really sensitively and professionally done, is my contention that, that ultimately people help people, right? And, you know, when I look at my life, there are certain people that took me on at certain times that were absolutely critical to what I did. And I just feel that sometimes we forget the power of that. So I, I was thinking, you know, at universities, maybe we should have more mentoring. So a third year might help, a, a, you know, someone who's coming in to the university. So I think they, those things are quite powerful. And I think they're powerful in the workplace as well. Just helping you navigate the system and again when, when if you're from a middle class background you usually have you know your mum and dad are usually helping you in that respect if you're not I think there's all sorts of tacit sort of skills that you need i.e things that you might not be explicitly stated so I guess that's what I was thinking in terms of mentoring support because I, I and the other thing I found is that often young people from disadvantaged backgrounds feel quite isolated in highly selective universities where they might be the only one in their particular class. You know, you know, I was of, of an age where when you went to university, you weren't really expected to do part-time jobs, you know, you, that, you, and it was partly because that gave you time to study. It was also partly the assumption was that you enjoyed yourself. But I, I, I think, and I'm pretty sure the statistics back this up that, that part-time working has just become more of a common thing, right? In, well, we're not allowed to do it, so I don't actually have personal experience of... Oh, okay. So at Cambridge, you're not allowed to do it? No. I think that's good in some ways. I mean, I, I, yeah, the reality for some disadvantaged students will be that they have to do some jobs, right? And that, and that is really hard, I think, really hard. But but sometimes I think that is, you know, maybe we should look at sort of the funding issues, for the examples there. You know, where could we use more access funds to support young people? There's been issue, examples of that during the pandemic, I think. I always say my experience of going to university was partly me getting a place to stay because I had nowhere to stay in London at the time. I went to Sheffield University. It was a room. I mean, it was, it was, it was, there was a practicality to that. And that is, a, you know, for, for students still today, that's a reality. So, so don't, don't underestimate that. I think in, sometimes in these debates, we forget the levels of, poverty I would call it that some people are experiencing and because the debates tend to be dominated by those from middle classes we we just presume right that you you have a bedroom to go I mean the pandemic was really interesting on this of course because of the discussions around the internet lack of internet yeah there's a significant number of children who don't have internet access there's a significant number that don't have a room yeah so I think those things are really important and may, maybe we need to think harder about how we support students once they're in the university so they don't have feel the need to get a job. Speaking to Lee made it very apparent to me that whilst the large-scale corruption seen in the US didn't appear to be an issue in the UK, there are still great problems when it comes to access and inequality in a higher education setting. This led me to seek out interviews with students from the University of Cambridge, people who see firsthand the extent to which greater calls for diversity and inclusivity have succeeded. I spoke to Abby, a class act officer for the Robinson College Students Association. I wanted to know what her role entailed on a day-to-day -day basis. I was pleased to discover that my college had decided to treat her job as a welfare concern. 
I'm Abby. I do HSPS at Robinson and I'm also the class act officer for the RCSA. What does class acts kind of entail for people who haven't heard of it? What's well, new It's new to the RCSA this year, so I'm the first person to do it. So we've decided that we want it to be a welfare role. So mm-hmm. it's less it's less about students coming in and much more about students that are here, yeah. but also working with the access officer. Yeah. So it's a kind of best of both worlds with the with the access support. Do you think, like, historically, maybe people have focused too much on, like, widening participation and then people get here and are just not supported at all? Or kind of given maybe a false view of what Cambridge might look like? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think Cambridge is really different as, like, a lived experience to what you think it's going to be. Although, obviously, it is a very, like, middle-class environment. I think that that doesn't make it unenjoyable, even when you're coming from a working-class background. I think that's... It's weird and that the adjustment in the first couple of weeks is weird. Yeah. But in general I think you get you get used to it and it becomes really enjoyable really quickly. Just kind of talking about maybe the point of access, like obviously we've kind of seen in America there've been like actual corruption. Do you think similar things happen in the UK or is it maybe less likely to happen because we have kind of different entrance requirements or different ways of taking assessment? I think that it's probably less obvious. I think but at the same time I think when you look at certain schools in the country getting, you know, 50, 60, 70 yeah. from their year into Oxbridge, I think to some degree, those schools must know how to play the admissions yeah. game and they must have some kind of insider information that your average UK state school doesn't have. Yeah. I think maybe, I think maybe corruption's a strong word, but I think that there is definitely a system where there's you can definitely benefit from it or you can lose out from it. Yeah. Do you think Cambridge kind of, does things better maybe because they have a bit more of a holistic approach or I don't know because I think they like to brand themselves on look how well we take our admissions every factor is taken into account but at the end of the day do you think that has a massive impact or do you reckon it's kind of pretty much the same no matter where you go like if you go to Oxford or another Russell Group Uni I think it does have an impact but they do like they only do like the super curricular yeah thing with the admissions and it's like that academic focus mm. I think that can be really beneficial I think if you're looking at personal statements and looking for extracurriculars that can that can sometimes lead to the problem they have in America like a lot of people don't have the funds to do yeah. three or four sports a week or to play an instrument to grade eight I think that having the focus beyond how much you love your subject yeah. is probably a good ac- on, on the access front. When you kind of chat to people here at Cambridge what do you think the biggest issues that they have if they're coming and trying to adjust and fit into this what you've kind of described as a very middle class environment I think it starts I think it starts as a self a self-confidence thing I think a lot of the, the freshers mixing I think you really have to it's, it's more I think it's more difficult to put yourself out there when you feel like it's a really different environment yeah, that's okay uh, I think the whole you know I think everyone's heard it oh what school did you go to conversations when you're a fresher I think that once you've pushed past that yeah I think the hardest bit is probably the first two weeks no I've definitely been asked what school I went to before I've been asked where I'm from mm. which I find kind of it's a strange question it's really odd I think as well like here I've never when you get asked what A levels you got here mm. have you been asked that question before like I tell it to my friends at other unis they're like what we don't care that's ridiculous he also asked me how many A-levels I did, and I was like, oh, I did three. And he was like, oh, is it not, you know, don't you have to get, don't you really have to have done four to have got in? And I was like, wow, okay. Well, clearly not, but, you know. <laughs> I think a lot. that's a lot of the problem with some of the activism in Cambridge as well, is that people 
forget they're not abstract problems. Yeah. They're like real problems people face and people that their peers face and you can't talk about inequality as like mm. an issue like a like an issue area or a talking yeah. point. But actually plenty of your course mates or your friends in college are gonna experience the problems that yeah. you're talking about theoretically. Do you think Cambridge is doing well with that kind of thing? Do you think there is good activism in Cambridge or do you think sometimes it can be a bit, as you say, kind of abstract or a bit performative sometimes? I think there's definitely good activism in Cambridge. Sometimes, obviously, but that, as with anything, sometimes yeah. you lose sight of what you're going for. But I say on a whole, I'd say student activism in Cambridge is probably pretty useful and cares about the right things as well. Yeah. Why do you think higher education is still unequal if places are saying we really have like a quota we we want to get loads of state school applicants in we want to get all sorts of people from disadvantaged backgrounds in why hasn't that really happened yet or why is that taking maybe a bit longer than we would have hoped i think that to an extent the university can can because the outreach i think is often very targeted at individual schools like you know the colleges have that yeah have like however many schools they have in a particular area and they mm. go and they talk to them I think in a way that works on a smaller level but in terms of doing big change in a short space of time it's not as effective yeah. because you're not getting that message that Cambridge is for everyone out I think that in a way I think you should use more of the social media and use more of that for outreach I think that getting the wider audience is probably the best way to change yeah. people's perceptions of the uni do you reckon people like like Ibs Mo and stuff are really because uh, sometimes I look at that and I'm like, I genuinely think he might have done more for like widening participation at Cambridge than people who are literally paid to kind of to to think about how to solve these problems. <laughs> no, I agree. I watched I watched all of his videos. Yeah, because he did it. He plays on the same was on the same course as me. Oh yeah, yeah. And I watched all of his videos religiously before I applied, and I was like, oh, because he, you know, like whole oh, he seems really normal. Yeah, like he seems like he sounds like me. He you know, doesn't come across in that kind of, like, stereotypical Cambridge way. Yeah, yeah. I'd say, yeah. I think people like that do so much and don't get very much credit at yeah. all. Do you reckon that at unis they could do, like, workshops at the start of, like, every freshers' event where you just have to talk about this? Because I know we have consent workshops and we have race workshops, but I think class or, like, previous higher education experience is probably something that's not massively talked about. Yeah, I think I was having a proposition to Felix. Felix is the RCSA president. Yeah. yeah Robinson. <laughs> uh, to say to Felix that, obviously we have an LGBT talk at the beginning, we have a race talk at the beginning, um, we have a disabilities talk and like a general welfare consent yeah. talk. I think it would be nice to, maybe not, uh, maybe not a whole half an hour, but just have 10 minutes in that big RCSA thing yeah. when the freshers start to be like, here are some things that are very untaxful to say. Yeah. Like, just, like, a short a short talk on how not to yeah, well, make people's imposter syndrome worse. Yeah, how not to be classes. Class is one of those things that I think in Britain is just, like, it's so present, but just no one talks about it. Everyone's way too scared to talk about it, I think. Yeah. Or people talk about it here in such a out-of-touch way that makes people that have experienced class and the quality that are sat in the room... Yeah. feel really like oh my gosh this is an awful conversation to sit through or even like the confesses i've seen sometimes they're just like like that's just so tone deaf and mm. like pigeonholing sometimes i think about what working class should look like what middle class should look like and not kind of taking into account different factors because obviously race and gender then play a massive part of as well you know you've obviously like taken on a role there as like as someone who's you know part of the rcsa part of kind of a jcr and there's obviously all these mentorship schemes, but like, 
do you think there's sometimes a lot a bit of pressure to kind of be like oh, I got in here I should I should I really need to give back mm. or like because I think what I always think is like all of these mentorship schemes and all of these volunteering things that unpaid and they're like on top of your degree and it's kind of can be very rewarding but could also be quite a big burden sometimes if you really think that it's your kind of role to to push for this yeah I think the men the thing with the mentorship schemes is that in a way they're in some ways they're so helpful but you're right they can be I think they can be really draining especially adjusting to Cambridge yeah when you first join as a fresher that's obviously when the academic year below you and yeah. then applying and I think that you're trying to adjust to being in Cambridge and you're trying to adjust to this like massive new experience that you're having I think it can sometimes be a little bit too much yeah but then again you get that sense of guilt that's like well I should help and I want to help but I can't and that is makes all the already sort of complicated time more so that the US has social mobility rankings do you reckon that's something that could be introduced in the UK do you reckon that would work do you reckon people would kind of respond to that because you have like all of these university rankings at the Guardian the Times Higher Education and everything and in themselves I think are quite flawed but aren't maybe focusing on what's really important like if Cambridge can brand itself like first in the country it doesn't really need to be massively responsible for anything else it's doing if academically it's great I think that is something that we should introduce I think that it would force universities to be more honest about their statistics as well yeah because a lot of the time I think every year you know Cambridge and Oxford as well come out with their 60% state school statistics don't break it down and don't tell you that the massive percentage from grammar schools and the massive percentage from free schools and that don't take into account in the slightest the very very complex nature of the state education system I think that having a social mobility ranking would force them to look at all the class act issues Mm. as well so you could look at people from care leavers people who are coming from low-income backgrounds people that are coming from first generation university backgrounds and I think it would force them to look at the intersection between different inequalities that affect higher education like not just class but if they had that mobility idea in then you could look at them intersected with race or gender and stuff like that yeah definitely should Cambridge be doing more because it has so much like clout as it is do you Mm -hmm. mean like there are some other unis that like you know they want to do as much as they can but are also being kind of like stripped apart or losing funding and have people with maybe less time and who are spread like more thinly across do you reckon like Cambridge and Oxford should take a bigger role or do you reckon that in itself is a bit problematic because it's like you shouldn't all just be aiming for Oxford? I think it can be problematic but I think also I think if Oxbridge set a tone for access it would trickle I feel like it would trickle yeah. down I think it'd be such a big news story etc yeah. get such good press and all of this that if Oxbridge started I think other unis would follow yeah and they could like you know it could be adapted to different universities admission systems and stuff like that. I think everyone's aware that you know the statistics are you know all of this is it's a lot harder for maybe working class students or students from disadvantaged backgrounds do you reckon that maybe not even the universities but the government has properly thought about that when it when it came to the pandemic you know I think yeah I think the reaction was so rushed obviously for you know, the yeah, reasons yeah. that are out of anyone's control mm. and I think obviously they had the exam results catastrophe yeah and that was terrible and also I think it took so long to be providing computers and it took so long to address the issue of Wi-Fi and mm. access to technology and stuff like that. I think that maybe, you know, universities could have looked at their access outreach areas and been like, oh, we'll take responsibility for students who are... And that would encourage 
people from those backgrounds yeah. to apply as well and it would have that positive reinforcement i think universities could have could have taken a bigger role in helping on that front I was happy to hear Harvey's optimism about the future of promoting inclusivity and better representation at UK universities, and to know that activism in Cambridge concerning these issues was largely positive. I knew, however, that Abby, by nature of her role, was the most likely person to be informed on points of contact and resources for people from minority and underprivileged backgrounds. This led me to speak to my friend from school, Freya, also a student at Cambridge, who doesn't occupy a role in a student union, to see what her experience of university had been so far. I'm Freya, I'm a second year Bionatsky at Keys and I'm from Newcastle. What do you think about accessibility at Cambridge or about how it is to be Northern here and from a state school? I think access has obviously improved a lot recently compared to how it has been. There's a lot of like specific programmes that increase Northern representation. <laughs> and Like um, what? So we have, I know at Keys anyways, we have like a specific class officer on the GCSE, the student union basically who has outreach talks with schools, schools can visit and get a tour and um, we have like Q&A sessions with local state schools for admissions questions. We have a Facebook group as well which is like for access and they ask for people to do quick interviews but in terms of being northern at Cambridge you know you can definitely tell that you don't necessarily fit in with like the bulk of people and you have lived a very different life to some people here. But you get used to it and you do find your kind of people. But at first it can be quite overwhelming when you realise that, you know, you don't go on two ski holidays a year and you don't have, like, a holiday home in Spain and you can't really relate to some of the experience that other people have had, I guess. And do you think Cambridge does enough to make people feel welcome here? Well, it's difficult because you don't want to actively discriminate against people from, like, a private school, wealthier southern background because if they deserve to be here, if they can get the grades to be here, then they should be allowed to be here. But... It can be very overwhelming when the majority... I think I heard a statistic, I don't know if it's true, but 70% of my year at Keys is private school, which is a lot. Yeah, I think it's like 60 at once and maybe slightly higher. Mm. So, obviously, everyone here like is deserving to be here, but it can be quite a lot when you just don't always feel like you fit in with the rest of them. Isn't it like 7% of yeah. the population are privately educated? So, that statistic's clearly not represented at Keys anyway, but... Did you have any, like, access to any sorts of programmes when you were applying? So I know at school for the Open Day we came and we... Because our link college is Jesus College. Mm. So we were allowed to stay over at Jesus for the Open Day, which is good because otherwise it wouldn't really have been feasible to come mm. just for the day. So that was good. I also went to a summer school at Trinity when Did I was you? in Year 12. Yeah. Really? <laughs> it was, like, a week at Trinity and it was, like, a women in STEM summer school. Was it good? Yeah, it was good. We, like obviously stayed in like Trinity fresher accommodation and had a week of like lectures and went punting and had dinner in hall and stuff. Was it covered? Yeah, it was completely free. Really? They even paid for train tickets and it was just for state school students. Mm. So that was really good. It definitely encouraged me to apply because I met like-minded people from a similar background and I was like, well, maybe yeah. I will fit in there. But they're the only two I've been involved in. A lot of the outreaches with like schools in the area rather mm. than schools all the way up. In Newcastle, so can feel quite like removed, I guess. Have you done any outreach? I was gonna help with the interviews last year, but I haven't done any. No, but I think there's also that thing of like you think it's your responsibility when it's not really. Like mm. I think a lot of people from underrepresented backgrounds think it's on them when it's like you also have stuff on 
and it yeah. is unpaid most of the time. Yeah, a lot of the things that come up in the Facebook group chat, which are like, we need a helper for this, it's like a whole afternoon Q&A session, like the day before an exam or something. Yeah. It's like, I would obviously love to help, but having such a demanding workload here, it's hard to do everything that you want to do, I guess. Do you have any thoughts about how to improve access at Cambridge or more generally? I think definitely using social media helps because there's obviously there's is a Cambridge stereotype, isn't it, from the outside that, you know, does happen to be quite true in a lot mm. of cases, the, the Cambridge student. So maybe by increasing representation of social media of like a broader range of people, that would help potentially because it can be quite daunting to apply and when you show up at interview and you listen to people talk and you know their voices are really fancy mm. and I don't know they just like they're used to like wearing a suit and stuff like things like yeah. that I don't know we never had to apart from prom but like they wear a suit every day to their private school and like they go to all these balls and parties and I don't know it's just a lifestyle that felt very foreign to me mm. when I arrived so maybe use social media in some way to increase I've been friends with Freya for a few years now and was interested to hear her talk about her experience at Cambridge, as it's something we both chat about quite often. I think it's fair to say we found it quite odd to experience a degree of culture shock in our own country when we first moved down south to Cambridge. And whilst our time there has been a mostly positive experience so far, I know that it's often strange when we're confronted with people whose experience of the north means anything past London. Yet again though, I was encouraged by Freya's perception of her time at Cambridge and the work that student officers do at promoting access. And I feel very lucky to have had someone from the same school as me during times when I found the social divisions to be a bit overwhelming. I set out to discover if there was any high level, high drama corruption in the UK, like that discovered in the United States. What I found was a more insidious inequality that lurks in the form of pre-existing social injustice. Whilst the problem is perhaps not as overt in Britain as in America, this only makes the solution more complicated, as multiple factors intersect in order to reinforce a hierarchical British elitism that pervades all sectors. So it should therefore come, not as a shock perhaps, but as a disappointment, that this inequality is still present in our universities. As I have said, the solution is not simple, as blame lies with many different parties, the universities themselves, the government, those who make university a hostile environment for others, and those who endorse the notion that higher education is the only route to success. What I've learned from speaking to Lee in particular is that the approach to levelling the playing field has to be holistic. It does not suffice to radicalise one aspect of the system if the rest remains unchanged. I'm therefore curious as to what the future holds for the place of higher education. Will it ever truly reflect a population as diverse as Britain's? Will the way in which applicants are selected be revolutionised? Will we even value university education above other qualifications in the years to come?